But now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God which is by faith in Jesus Christ unto all and upon all that believe, for there is no difference. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God has set forward to be a propitiation and a tony sacrifice through faith in His blood, to declare His righteousness for the remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God, to declare, I say, at this time His righteousness, that He might be just, and the justifier of him that believes in Jesus. Let me read to you verses 21, 22, and 23 again. And this is from the New King James. But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God which is through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe, for there is no difference for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now, we've read the whole paragraph before this. There is one author who has said that this is likely the most important paragraph that has ever been written. Another commentator has said that this is possibly the most theologically dense or packed paragraph in all of the Bible. With that in mind, we're not going to get through this whole paragraph we're just going to look at a portion of it, and I want to look at it as simply as we can. I want to express it in such a way that it speaks to what is resonating in the heart of every individual. And so let's start with this. What we've just read is God's answer. God speaking through Paul and giving an answer for the deepest cry of any human heart. It's an answer that God gives that counters the answers that we give to ourselves for this cry. We have something within us that is crying out. We have a longing within us that comes from us. It's sometimes subconscious to our minds. Other times we're consciously aware of it. And then we seek to give an answer to this desire or impulse within us. But the answer we give is almost always wrong and incorrect. And God is giving us the correct answer to this impulse, this question, this desire... And the impulse or the question or the desire is this, how can I be righteous? How can I be right within myself? How can I be right in the world and adjusted properly to the world around me? How can I be right to transcendent and absolute things? How can I be right with God? God has placed in every human heart a desire to be right. This comes to us consciously. It also kind of flows through us subconsciously. This is a part of what resonates out from us and is dictated to us by our own consciences and given circumstances. It's cultivated in us by the genes that we inherit. You know, some of us inherit certain genes that are more sensitive to certain things than other things. There's a reason why different parents raise their kids in different ways and they've figured out usually it's something they've inherited and, and some of it's incorrect, but some of it's a response to what parents have found is most helpful for the sensitivities of that genetic pool that rises up through any family. And so my family needed a really strong hand. You know, we had to have education on how to sit still and how to listen and how to be quiet 
and how to consider others. Others have other things that they have to teach their children that kind of gather together. But there is this genetic element within us that gives us sensitivity towards some things and not so sensitive towards other things. You discover this, by the way, when you get married and you find out that your spouse has a whole different line of things that they think are kind of morally important than you have. But then you realize, oh, I have something to contribute here as well. And some of that's genetic. The other one is it's just how you're raised. You know, your parents raise you with things that they want you to value. And so also your conscience is cultivated by what your parents give you and how they instruct you. And, and then it's also cultivated by the society that you grow up in. Societies impress you with things that are right and good and things that are not good and not productive. Society sometimes gets this right and oftentimes it gets it wrong, but nonetheless, it's pressing us towards things that they tell us are the right way and the right things to think and the right things to do. And then on top of that, you have government that also has all kinds of laws of do's and don'ts to hone this impulse to be right. But above all of that, the Spirit of God is at work in our lives. The Spirit of God is at work in every man's life and every woman's life and every culture And the Spirit of God is also pressing upon individuals this interest in being right, being righteous, and being good. You can deny the existence of God, but you can't deny this impulse. Even if you say there's no God and there's no basis for absolute truth and there's no kind of basis for an absolute morality that everybody can do what's right in their own eyes, the fact is everybody doesn't just do what's right in their own eyes. They're all influenced by this impulse and this desire to be right. Ultimately, it's an impulse that's driven by God himself that we would be right before him. Another thing to note here is that this pursuit of righteousness finds a response in people to establish their own righteousness through their own efforts and through their own rules and through their own laws, and they almost always go astray. But the fact is, everybody develops laws and rules and standards by which they think, if I do this and I do this and I do this, I can achieve some state or standing of being right and good, and I can feel good about myself. Some people think that when Paul is writing this, and particularly what Paul says here, that he's uniquely addressing the Jewish mindset, and particularly he's addressing legalistic Jews And he's telling them, listen, there's a righteousness that God wants to give you that is outside of all these laws that you've established and you're following that comes from God himself. And so Paul is speaking to legalistic Jews, but I don't think we have to believe that. We don't have to accept that as the idea. The fact is Paul was called a missionary to the Gentiles, a missionary to those nations and those people that weren't grounded in Judaism, which is what Christianity rises from. And if you go to any of those places and you look at into their society and their belief system, you see that all of them had laws that they believed they had to follow in order to be right. So what Paul says here has an application to everyone in every place. Everyone is trying to establish some level of rules or standards they can follow so that they can consider themselves righteous. And you know, some people are better at following those rules than others. Some rise further up that kind of legal ladder to feel better about themselves than others. But here's another truth. No matter how far up you go, there's embedded within you an insecurity that you've not gone far enough. There's a sense that everyone has, no matter how hard they've tried and what they've done, that they haven't quite got to that rung of righteousness. What it does in religions is it makes them develop 
theories or ideas that, well, when I die, I'll go through purgatory, and there I'll atone for the bad things I've done, and I'll figure out what patterns I can start developing so I can work my way out of purgatory, or I'll go through a series of reincarnation where eventually I'll work my way up to some higher life because I'll find the right way and I'll build the pattern to live. No matter how hard a person tries, no matter how good a person thinks they are, no matter how they might preen themselves before others to show them how righteous they are and how moral they are and how kind and good they are, the fact is deep inside everyone has an insecurity that they're not quite righteous enough. That's why Nicodemus came to the Lord Jesus in the middle of the night. You find that in John chapter 3. Nicodemus was one of the 70 spiritual leaders of Israel. He was one of the individuals who followed all the laws of Judaism to such an extent that he had graduated, might say, to the highest class of moral and spiritual leaders, and he ruled from a council over all of Israel and the people of Israel on how they ought to live and how they ought to conduct themselves. And yet in the middle of the night, he came to the Lord Jesus because inside he knew he wasn't right. And what was Jesus' answer to him? You have to be born again. It doesn't matter what you've done and how good your performance is. There has to be a, a change at the very structure and substructure of your very being. You have to be born again. But this is why he came to the Lord Jesus. It's also why the Pharisees and the religious leaders organized to put Jesus to death. They had worked so hard to establish some bearing before the people that they were right and good and they weren't secure in it. And when the Lord Jesus came, he showed them up. He ruined the curve. He revealed that they were showing up, they were A students in morality, and Jesus showed up, and all of a sudden they went all the way down to an F, an F minus before the people, and well, they didn't like it. They knew it was true, but they didn't like that Jesus had shown them up, and so they wanted to get the light out of the way so that they could somehow go back to the facade that they had developed, but even their putting the Lord Jesus' death revealed that they were insecure about the righteousness that they had attained, and Paul knew this. Paul knew that no matter how self-righteous a person may appear to be, no matter how assertive and strong they seem to be in their own righteous state and standing, he knew that deep down inside there was this insecurity and there was still this, this spirit-driven impulse and design and drive within them to want to attain a righteousness that was not theirs. He knew that this sense that I'm good enough was a bubble that was really easy to pop. And he pops it. If you go and read the first three chapters here of Romans, you'll see that basically Paul takes to task individuals who think that by their religion, their pagan religion, their idolatry, their morality, their Jewish religion, that they could establish any state of righteousness in themselves. He reveals to them, no, this only reveals that you are sinners, not only sinners, but you're wretched sinners. So he takes this impulse to be righteous. He reveals to them that they can't establish any righteousness by their efforts. And then he shows them that after all that effort, the state that it leaves them in, and it's a sorry state. And that's what he talks about in Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 20. Let me read it to you very quickly. You'll have a hard time maybe accepting this. But Paul says, this is where all of your efforts at righteousness ultimately leave you. As it is written, verse 10, he says, there is none righteous, no, not one. You're not righteous. All that work and you're still not righteous. There's none that understands. There's none that seeks God. They are all gone out of the way. They are all together become unprofitable. There's none that does good. No, not one. What do you mean? I'm a good person. I do good works. No. Those things that you do ultimately are so far from what God is desiring, God is looking for. There's none that does good. Their throat is an open sepulcher, an open grave. With their tongues they use deceit. The poison of 
cobras is under their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery in their ways. The way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth should be stopped and all the world become guilty before God. All these professions and declarations and laws, just be quiet. You're guilty before God. When God looks and sees the substance and the foundation from which you're trying to produce and develop by your own effort this righteousness, this is what he sees at the core of your being. You're never going to get there on your own. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, by all your work, by your effort, therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh, no person be justified in his sight. For by the law comes the knowledge of sin. All these laws and rules just show you that you can't measure up, that you can't meet it. So there's where you're at. All that effort, everyone has a desire to be righteous. Everyone develops a system and a strategy to gain that righteousness. They can even succeed at it, but they're still insecure about it. And ultimately, it's futile. It won't produce the righteousness you want. And instead, what it does is it leaves you in a constant slog of life, a constant, endless progression of trying harder, of succeeding and failing, doing better one day, doing worse the next day, feeling good in your conscience at one hour, feeling horrible the next moment, waking up feeling this is a new day, going to sleep at night saying that was a terrible day, right? One of our brothers sent me a video of somebody and how a person... His attitude when he goes out to go golfing and his attitude when he gets back from golfing, right? And when he goes out to golfing, he's all excited and he's ready to just hit the golf ball down the middle of the fairway and, you know, he's imagining what it looks like and he's envisioning it. And then when he comes home from golfing, he takes the golf bag and slams it on the floor and he kicks it around. And, well, that's how it is if you're honest with yourself and, well, I'm going to be righteous. I'm going to earn a right standing with God by my effort. Yeah, you can get excited about it for a moment. Very idealistic. You can be very encouraged that you're, this is your day for turning a new leaf in life. And you know, you'll be kicking yourself around at night oftentimes. And on and on and on it goes. That's the slog of life. It's the battle of life. God comes to people who are in this interminably long attempt to be righteous. And God adds to it, well, not only is this long and difficult, but through Paul, he basically says, it's futile. <laughs> it's never going to work. Here's what Paul is saying. You might not like to hear this, but aren't you tired of this unfulfilled longing and this unending effort that is before you? Aren't you tired of just trying and trying and trying to be right before God and right in your own skin? I have an answer for you, Paul says. There's a righteousness right now that comes from God apart from all the rules and all the laws and all the effort that God wants to reveal to you. That's his message. Let's look at a couple simple words here. The first word I want you to see here is just the word but. Back in November, we ended our series in Romans that we'd come up to this point, and actually, to some extent, it was kind of a sad series up to this point because every single time we got together, we had to hit the drum that Paul was hitting over and over again at the absolute sinfulness of men and our absolute inability to save ourselves and the wretchedness of what is bubbling up, you might say, from our own selves. It was getting darker and darker and darker. And just at the moment when Paul says, look, it's futile. All the laws you have only show you that you're a sinner and you're guilty before God. And just when you think finally you're ready to accept it and you're going down and you see all the way before you is just a direction of down, then God through the Spirit speaks to Paul to say, but, but, it's a conversative. 
It's a word of contrast that stands against the dark descriptions of the fertility that's gone before. And it's a word of contrast against all the failures of the past and all the fruitlessness of your efforts. And when you finally see your deep, desperate need and your utter just condemnation because of your sins before God and you're about ready to give up all hope, God says, but... Paul says, but, and now all of a sudden there's a moment at which there's a line of hope that comes before these individuals. Here's the next word, even a better word. It's the word now, now. Against this ongoing slog and the struggle and the doing it over and over again, trying to achieve some state of righteousness and goodness and a slog that individuals try to forget everything that's in their past and hope that somehow they can make a better day in the future and then they have to project it out beyond this life to the afterlife where maybe there I'll be able to do what needs to be done to finally be righteous. Before all this, God breaks in with this word, now, now is a righteousness that's revealed for you. And God gives us an answer that is immediate. It's not a long, drawn-out process of steps that you have to follow. It's not a series of procedures that you have to put in place. It's not a maze that you follow, and it's not a map that somehow guides you to some hidden treasure. It's a, it's a burst of light that comes almost blindingly and overwhelmingly and flashes out of the darkness upon us. Now, now God has something for us. Back when I was in high school, I went with a couple of friends and we went out to the Cuna Caves. I don't know if any of you have ever been to the Cuna Caves. They're still there. They haven't gone away. And there's a large ladder. Let's go down. I don't know how many feet it is, but it's got to be about 40 or 50 feet of ladder that you go down from the surface of the earth to get down into this cave. And then you, you wander back into the back of the cave. And it's about, it's a little more than a quarter of a mile that you go back there. And you, we had a little flashlight. And we got all the way back. But as we got back to the back of that cave, our flashlight died. <laughs> now, listen, you don't know what blackness is until you're in the back of a cave without a flashlight. You can't see anything. You can't see anything. And so, well, we found that one of us had some matches, a book of matches. Not very many, but a book of matches. So we would light the match because we had to get out of there. We'd light the match, and there was enough of a wind blowing in there that, that it would swirl that flame around. So you couldn't even let the match burn out before it started burning your hand. So you would light that match, and you'd get a bearing of where you need to go, and then it would go out, and you'd crawl five or six yards and then you'd light another match and you'd see kind of where you need to go and you'd crawl five or six yards and you had to keep your head down low. It was really rocky. You really wanted to stand, but you couldn't stand because you didn't want to hit your head on the ceiling. It comes down low at different points and I'd actually hit my head on the ceiling there once before and there and I just totally split open my head and my head had got all bloody and it was terrible. And so we're all keeping our heads down low and oh, how dark it was. Eventually, we ran out of matches. By then, we had developed some sense of the direction we were going. We just kept crawling on our hands and knees. And there's a panic that comes upon you. And then all of a sudden, you imagine that you're seeing light. You can't really see it, but the sense in which it seems as though there's something else introducing itself to this blackness, some little filter of light or some different sense of something other than just utter blackness. And so you keep moving along, and then that gets a little bit stronger and a little bit stronger, and then it's a little more light, and then all of a sudden you start to just dis- barely distinguish edges and forms in the space in front of you, and then slowly you come into where you enter into the entrance of that cave where light is coming through a little filtered hole up above your head, and you enter into the light, and then you climb up that ladder and you're out in the light. Well, it's quite, I've got to tell you, 
it's quite a relief when you realize that that's actual light and it's coming from the outside and it's encouraging. But it came gradually and you made your way gradually to it. And that may be how an individual comes to God's truth. That's maybe how God begins to show you what needs to take place in your life. He may just give a little bit of light so that you can see, among other things, the dangers before you and the sin in your own life and the need in your life. He's stirring your eyes to begin to realize what is the great deep need in your life. But that is not how God gives his righteousness to you. It may be how he kind of reveals truth to you and he reveals your need to you and he shows you what it is he's done for you. But the day in which God brings you to his righteousness, it's not like that. It's not like this slow, progressive, growing light. It's a flood of righteousness that he pours out upon you that's completely different than anything you've known in your life. It's not something that you thought of. It's not something you climbed your way up to. It's not something you reasoned your way to. It's something God manifests to you or reveals to you. He pours out upon you this truth that you can be right in him and that he gives you his righteousness and that it can come to you in a now moment, a moment that will last forever, a moment that's sustained, a righteousness that will never pass away. Wesley sang about it. We just sang about it this morning. Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke the dungeon flamed with light, flamed with light. This is not a person who's just discovering breadcrumbs of truth until somehow he comes to a new philosophy in life. This is a person who's come out of the cave in a burst of light, cave of his own sin, his own misery. And God has said, I I have a righteousness that comes completely outside of yourself. It comes completely from me and I'm giving it to you. And in that moment, you are brought into the eternal now of God. That's the eternal now of God. It's the now of God's complete and total righteousness given to you in the place of the long slog that men engage in to try to make themselves right for God in their own effort. How good is that? How wonderful is that? How gracious is that? Let's look at another thing here quickly. Let us emphasize this phrase, a righteousness of God is revealed. A righteousness of God is revealed. The old NIV translation is a righteousness from God. And the emphasis there is the origin. It originates from God. God sends something to us, so it comes from him. But the Greek word there lends itself to the most common translation, which is a righteousness of God. And that includes the idea of origin, that God sends it to us, it's from him. But it also adds something. It's not just a message of origin It strongly reveals a message of substance. This is God's righteousness. This is a righteousness of God himself. God in a flash of light brings down upon us his righteousness in the place of all the things we've tried to drive up from ourselves. Everything that we've tried to somehow attain in our own effort. It's a flash of God's righteousness poured out upon us in answer for all of our longing For all of our effort, for all of our failure, God reveals and sets upon us his own righteousness. It's not acquired by our efforts. It's brought about by a revelation, a manifestation that God sends to us. Receiving that righteousness draws us into a state of accomplishment, of a finished, fulfilled longing 
that is before God forever and forever and forever. In other words, all the things I've done to try to be righteous is put aside. All the sins I've ever committed are put aside. And in that very moment in which I receive and embrace what God would give me of his own righteousness, at that moment I stand complete and finished in a state of righteousness that we will never entirely know or understand because it's as deep as the eternity of God. It's his own righteousness. Every good, true, moral law that we embrace is a reflection of the divine lawgiver's own nature and character. All the laws, all the Ten Commandments that you look at, God gave those commandments. They're not arbitrary commandments. If you studied them and considered the Ten Commandments, each one of them is a reflection of something that's true in God. And God is asking us, in a sense, by the way we live, to reflect His very character and His very nature. Yet when we try to do that, we fail over and over again. The Lord Jesus came and He lived a sinless life. And he lived a sinless life and he obeyed all the commands, but it wasn't because he had a checklist. It wasn't because he had them memorized in the back of his head and he was just making sure that he kept checking. Okay, don't lie. Okay, today, remember, don't lie. And he had this checklist that he was fulfilling and keeping. It's not because he was just following the law. It was because he was God in the flesh, come the flesh. It was because all those laws were a reflection of his own character. So in this sense, Jesus didn't follow the law. The law followed him. The law followed him. Now, if you think you can be right before God by following the law, you won't be able to. But if you want to, you can follow the law to the Lord Jesus Christ. It'll lead you to him, the one who perfectly and completely fulfilled it. And all, oh Lord, I failed. I haven't done this. I haven't done that. But you did. This is an expression. Oh, this was teaching me of what you are like, what you are perfectly like, what you have accomplished. This is teaching me what you want to give me from your own good self. In your life. That's the promise here. That's what God's given us. 2 Corinthians 5.21. I've quoted this to you. It's one of my favorite verses. When the Lord Jesus went to the cross, he went to the cross to bear the sins and the punishment of sins that we had committed, but he also went to the cross in order that he might lift up before God the perfect righteousness that he had lived and extend that as a gift to us that we might receive. And so 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For he made him who knew no sin, that's Jesus Christ, to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. I look to the Lord Jesus. I believe that He has fulfilled and kept all the law, that the law has followed Him, and I follow the law, and it leads me to Jesus, the perfect, sinless, righteous one. And I realize this righteous, sinless one gave Himself to die in my place for my sins and to then extend to me and give to me His perfect righteousness to cover me to fulfill this instinct and that desire. In that moment, I enter into the now of God's perfect and complete righteousness. My righteousness, the Bible says, my own efforts, the Bible says, is like filthy rags. It's unacceptable to a perfectly righteous God. So God designs and desires to bring to us his own righteousness and say, here, clothe yourself with this. Put on my righteousness. I'll give it to you. That's what he provides for us. His own glorious righteousness to be received just now. Let's look at one other thing very quickly. In the very beginning of Romans, Paul talks about the fact that he has been set apart to the good news of God. Then he says that he's a servant to the good news of Jesus Christ. And then he says that this good news is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. There's no difference. This good news comes to whoever has faith 
But then Paul doesn't explain or give a full understanding of what that faith is that he's talking about. He says the just will live by faith and that God gives this good news and it comes. At this point, that God even gives a righteousness to people that comes to them by faith, but it doesn't explain the full nature of that faith until we come here in this passage. And now what Paul does is he shares with us that this faith that he was talking about has to have an object and that the object of this faith is Jesus Christ. The faith that brings to us salvation, the faith that brings to us the righteousness that God would provide for us, which is good news, as opposed to all of our effort and also all of our sin, is a faith that has an object, and the object is Jesus himself. And so, he says, is a righteousness that comes to us, what? By faith in Jesus Christ. We see that in our passage. There's a lesson for us in all this. It's that... When we come to God and we receive salvation, it's not by our effort. It's by something that comes to us utterly other than from ourselves. It comes by just trusting in Jesus himself. And that's the good news and that's the gospel. But so often after that happens, we get in a pattern of living that doesn't reflect that gospel. We go back to a mentality that says, okay, now that I've received this kind of initial righteousness from God, I'm going to prove in myself that I can do this, and we take it back into our own labor and our own effort, and we work hard. Let me just tell you that you might think this is true, but it isn't. Satan is not going to resist you if you're trying to do good deeds. He's not going to try to resist you too much if you're just trying to show your neighbors what a kind person you can be. He'll even help you develop disciplines of being patient. If you think that you should change certain areas and behave in your life and that this is going to make you right with God and gain God's approval, Satan will probably help you succeed at it. He's more than happy to let you make headway in morally refining your life. And he's not opposed to that message in the world today. In fact, he's authoring it. Just be a little better. Just be good. Just improve yourself. Just be good to this person and that person. You want to know where the gospel lies, where the good news lies, find out the message that Satan is resisting. Here's the message that Satan resists. You're a sinner. That there is nothing that you can do in your effort and your labor to save yourself or put yourself right with God. The effort you're doing is a continuous, ongoing slog that you will be unending and you'll never escape. But there's an end to all this struggle. God has come so that through Jesus Christ, he might give you his own righteousness. That you might stand right before him. God has given an answer and it comes through faith in Christ alone. I guarantee you, that is the message that Satan resists, that Satan resents, that Satan opposes, because it gives all the glory to God. It says it's all from God. You don't get to say, well, you know, I came to some better understanding of other people, and I made some good decisions, and I prayed a prayer, and I began going to church. I started doing good things, and I cleaned up my life. You don't get to say that. I'm just a sinner who reached out to take hold of what Jesus freely gave me of himself, of his own righteousness. The other day I was speaking to our brother in India. One of the brothers, there was a number of different brothers I was speaking to. I speak to him quite regularly, but he was telling me that, well, you know, I'm trying to maybe change my message of salvation to people. I'm trying to say that, well, there's a salvation that just helps them in their physical needs, and there's a salvation that maybe can help them find justice in their community, and a salvation that comes by bringing good, clean well to them, 
and by uh, maybe d- developing a salvation that comes to build better roads for them. And they all kind of come together. And it blends into the salvation that God gives us where he forgives us of our sins. And I said, well, listen, brother, listen. There may be a sense in which you save a person from a hard day's work or you save a person from a tummy ache because you give them clean water and you save them from some sense of misery. But, you know, the Lord Jesus said the poor you're always going to have with you. There are always going to be these troubles and these issues. And that's not the salvation that God is offering us. Listen, brother, read the book of Romans. Read the letter to Romans. Read the message that was declared. Here's the thing. I want to ask you something. Has Satan resisted you when you're trying to bring clean water to a village? Has Satan stood in opposition to your efforts to go and bring people and veterinarians to go and help them take care of the animals? It's all good things. Now listen, I'm not opposed to any of that. But is Satan resisting you and standing in the way of these things? No. What is it that Satan is resisting in your community? What is it that is initiating persecution to you as pastors? Why are they throwing you to jail? Is it the message, we need to bring better wells to people? We need to give people good medical care or veterinarian care for their animals? Or we need to find new ways to give them fresh, clean fuel for their cooking fires? Is that the reason that you're being persecuted? No. What are you being persecuted for? By teaching people that there's no other way of salvation than through Jesus Christ and that it comes freely through his gift to be believed. In your own life, you find out where the resistance comes and you'll find that's where it comes. Satan is perfectly happy for you to default back to try harder, work better, find out a way, develop a system, get your plans and... No. The Spirit of God comes in, trust in me, believe in me, rest in me, live in the now of the flash God's complete righteousness given to us. It's a sign of the sinfulness that's in our flesh that we say, thanks God, let me try this myself. Let me prove it by my own effort. That's got to be repented of. That's the thing we have to turn from above everything else. You think you just have to repent of your sins? You have to repent of this internal prejudice and this default that says let me do it myself now let me prove it in my own effort when God would pour out upon you the righteousness of God which is by faith let's bow our heads and let's pray what a tremendous and wonderful resting place we could have if we choose this What an end to the restlessness and the groping and the searching and the trying and the failure if we could but choose to take this. God, reveal it to us. Manifest it to us. Show us something that is outside of our human efforts and experience and knowledge. Something that's divine. Something that comes from heaven itself. Your perfect, absolute, holy, unsullied righteousness, justness, goodness, holiness, ready to envelop us and cover us. Well, God, we know our flesh will still have these impulses to sin. There'll still be the instinct within us to do it our way. But oh, to choose to live clothed in the righteousness of our God. Bring us to that good news. Help us to live in that good news. May this be the day for some 
in which the now of this eternal gift and blessing floods upon them with overwhelming power. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.